0: I've been thinking about this lately, this is what I suppose Welcome to the teaching all ministry of Calvary Chapel, Chapel, South London You can visit know. us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org I, I realize you right me So I'm on my knees for understanding The more the world I see, more I see The more I fit in, but I'm no diamond I want to begin with a thought, Um, I promise I'll clarify it, it's not from our original text, it's not what I want to deal with today, we have a text, a chapter that needs no introduction Um, but I want to begin with something because I think it encapsulates my thought. And I'll clarify it in the end. And it's Ecclesiastes 7 um, and verse 10. And it says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. That's a thought. Um, I don't believe in teaching anything that doesn't make sense to me from where I'm at. And uh, whenever people ask me, said, Oh, you know, I've got to teach or whatever, people go, Oh, I don't know what to do. It says, You know, it's as simple as always teach from where you're at. What will the Lord have to say to you? And build from there. And so this is what today's about, as ever I hope it will be in my life. Um, so like I said, we've got a text that needs no introduction So I won't introduce it You turn there as you feel led And it says this Though I speak with the tongues of men And of angels But have not love I have become sounding brass Or a clanging cymbal And though I have the gift of prophecy And understanding all mysteries And all knowledge And though I have all faith So that I could remove mountains But have not love No evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Um, Like I said, no introduction, isn't it? We all know what that is. Um... Love in the Christian sense is never more potent than in the peaks of human anxiety and frustration. It turns on the fact that love in the Christian sense, and so before we go in and actually look at what First Corinthians 13 means for us as Christians in the modern age, I have to explain what love in the Christian sense is. And it, we have to begin with a little bit of a theology lesson. Now, agape is the love, the term that is constantly used throughout the course of the New Testament. And many a good theologian will come up and say, oh, no, agape doesn't mean what everybody says it means because, obviously, if you have a Greek Greek understanding of what the word means, it just means affection. And so they'll always try to clarify and say, the way that people use Agape is not the right way, but then I'm always kind of pointed to First Corinthians 13, and it's like how we use words today. We give it new meaning, we give it new life, we revive it. You know, whether it be through slang or whether it be actually resurrecting obsolete words. You know, um, take the term gentleman. The term gentleman basically means you have a, a coat of arms and a piece of land when it was originally used, but people now use gentleman to say that to be a man who has conduct, a person who knows how to act in polite society. So back in the days, if you had a coat of arms and a piece of land, they would have expected you to be from polite society. And so even though it doesn't mean exactly what it means today, it carries forfeits meaning in a new sense. And words are like that. And Paul takes this word, a word that was very rarely used in the Greek. I mean, to the point where... In all of Greek literature, and we've got a lot of Greek literature that has survived from the ancient times, and it was used only several times. And so he takes this word agape and he says, "I'm going to give it new meaning because, basically, I don't feel comfortable talking about Christian love using the words that we commonly use, and namely eros or philia. If I say to somebody," Love you filial, love you as a friend, or I love somebody romantically, people will get the wrong idea of what love I'm talking about. And First Corinthians 13 is that, that point where he now looks at the Corinthian church and looks at us today and says, I'm gonna give this word my definition. And he defines it in the way that he wants. So every modern-day theologian should step aside and allow Paul to use the word as he means it to to mean it, which is, this is what Christian love is. It's not romance, it's not friendship, it's love of a different kind. And that's why my, my byline, my beginning, says that Christian love is more potent, more stronger in anxiety and frustration. Because it feeds off that which calls for it to exist. Jesus says to us, if we love those who love us, we do nothing more than what the heathen do. Because to love without any opposition is easy. But love is defined in its most difficult of circumstances and not in its best. It grows in hard times. It needs to be there in hard times. And so today we were looking to maturity. Love always has to begin somewhere and that's why philia and eros are not terms that we would say you need to f- throw out. You need to be connected with somebody. If you are again in a sense looking for a partner, eros needs to be present at the beginning but it can't continue. It has to grow into something, and this is why when we look at the, whole, the chapter as a whole, it's all about coming into maturity. When our friendships become difficult, the things that we find in common are no longer in common anymore. Paul is saying, this is when agape needs to come in. There's no point in marriage saying, I don't feel the romance anymore, because 1 Corinthians 13 says, the romance should have been jettisoned a long time ago. It now needs to move into something else. Like I said, our, our common interests, our attractions, will get us to the place where we are at least going to be able to begin something. And that's a good place to be. But it needs to grow into something. When we look at the beginning of the text, he encapsulates love in a very, very different different way than how we might look at it. He separates it from all actions. The theology behind this is that love is a motivation and is not something that you just merely do. Always, within the Christian sense... Motive precedes who you are or goes before who you are. And then all the actions proceed from that. So Christian love is a matter of being rather than doing. You can't do something and then say, that's love. The motive has to exist. The notion to love has to exist And then the action follows That's why the Bible says That you can rebuke somebody And it could be in love Because people say If you give somebody a harsh word That's not acting lovingly So some of the most extreme things Some of the most harshest things can happen And it is an act of love Because the motive is right So we see this as we look through the text. Verse 1 takes us through the fact that, you know, speaking with tongues. He's just gone through First Corinthians 12, which talks about all the gifts and the spirits being, you know, working within the church. And obviously the Corinthians had this idea that speaking in tongues was the, was the highest calling. It was the, it was the height of spiritual experience. And Paul goes and says, no, it's not the height of spiritual experience. Because as he'll go on to explain, tongues will cease. It will come to an end. Even to the point where he says that without the motive of love, people will not make a sound that is really beautiful. You know, you look at what he says, I've become sounding brass or clanging cymbals. Something that doesn't carry a melody. Something that just basically is an accompaniment. And so verse 1 tells us that our speech, even if it's very spiritual, is not gifted if it doesn't come through love. Agape love in particular. Verse 2 tells us, though, I have the gift of prophecy. Again, prophecy was again a very, even to this day, a very coveted gift. To be able to see what the Lord will be doing. To understand what the Lord will be doing in our lives. To encourage others through knowing what God is going to do in our lives. To understand all mysteries and have knowledge and just be one of those boffins that can tell you of things on any subject and just be able to give you wisdom and insight to have faith that can move mountains which is something that Jesus said you should have these are not obsolete things he says, you know, Paul tells us that to have the gift of prophecy, desire it because to be able to communicate with people is a desirable gift to be able to move mountains Jesus said you will as Christians be able to move mountains through the context of your faith And so he's not denying these things, he's just saying, the gift of love is not there. It's not within these actions, it's not within these great moves of God. He is showing us a better way. He goes into verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. This is why I say he's now taking all the things that he can think of that people would say, wow, people, people will only do that if they love you. And he's forcing the issue. He's saying, if I can do this, if I can actually do this and not actually love somebody, it again becomes unprofitable. It profits me nothing to give to the poor, to give my body, to do all these charitable things. It profits me nothing. Four and five now looks at the immature things that we can do when we say that we're in love. Love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. These are traits of a child when you look at the negative aspects. To be rude, to seek its own, are things, you know, I work with children on a, on a consistent basis and during these stages of development, there are just periods where children cannot see the world except through their own needs. And that's the reality of being a child. The positive aspects in verse 4 tells us that love suffers long, Love does not envy, love does not parade itself. You know, the parade in itself when you think of a child gives us a very clear image of a child who visibly wants to be seen that their needs are not being met. They'll fall on the floor, they will will create expressions, they will make you look like you're the meanest person in the world. It is not puffed up. (sighs) So Paul contrasts the negative aspects of being a child against the positive attitude of what we should be thinking, how we should be feeling. It will suffer long. You know, when you look at the context of a romance, you know, everything. Seemingly negative is overlooked. Everything that could be an issue will be overlooked. But then, if we continue to try and love within Philia or love within Eros, we'll find legitimate reasons to say, I'm no longer in love, because it will come to an end. And verse 8 picks up that point very clearly. But let's go through 6 and 7. It says, love is not cynical or weak. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is not to say that love is a passive kind of whatever happens kind of ignorance. It does not mean you are now void of a mind, void of a will. It just chooses to love in a blanket way, regardless of what you do. It's not cynical because the cynics will look and say, you know, they only really, the cynics and the scoffers only care about themselves and their own opinions. And that's why it says it believes all things. The ability to be cynical is basically you, we hear a story and we're thinking our mind likely, yeah, yeah, right. And there's times where we hear excuses and we know we've been lied to. We know it's an excuse and it's a weak excuse and this is where love comes in and says I will continue to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you the benefit to be honest in your own time. And we'll seek not to try and call somebody out. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't think that the bad things that happen in the world are really great. It doesn't look at, you know, the calamities that people might have and say, wow, that's great. It it couldn't have happened to to a worse person. And yet we could feel that way. It sees that sin has made the world a very difficult place to live in and people suffer devastations mass um, earthquakes and you know torrential weather that brings homes crashing down and people die it doesn't rejoice in the fact that sin destroys people's lives love basically believes that there is a better way. It will come good. Verse 8 says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Love is described here as an end within itself. If the motive has begun in love that is it, that's all you need the love is the gift and seeks no other gift and so it says it will never come to an end you have to note that because there are very few things in life that are an end within themselves everything must lead to something else and this again is picked up in its final verse Love is the only thing that is seen that will never come to an end. 9 and 10 tell us, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. This is the meat of what I want to share with you, my family, those who are visiting today. is that the imperfect aspects of our love, the very selfish notions of why we will even be anywhere and near one another or near to any specific individual needs to come to a place of perfection. The emotions that lead us to a particular place, the devastation that our lives might go through to bring us even to come into a church today has to come into a place where it's perfect. Because the bottom line is, is that the troubles that you go through where all of a sudden you're prepared to pray will come to an end and all of a sudden life will seem fine and you'll feel like you don't need to come anymore. The love that you felt initially and wanting to be in someone's presence all the time, you know, the extended phone conversations, everything will come to an end where you won't want that anymore. You just want to go to bed. That will come to an end. Sleep will be more important. What happens then? Imperfection must give way to perfection. What will you do when you don't feel like it? C.S. Lewis once said um, it's not that our passions are too strong it's that we're, they are too weak when we give in to something that we naturally feel inclined to do it's not the strength of the passion as we said we're talking about Christian love here we're not talking about eros or filial love which are kind of they're, they're, they're encapsulated in passions and feelings and everything feels great He says that's the weaker passions. Lewis is trying to clarify the fact that our passions are weak if they're just merely emotionally led. They are not strong. The heights of passion are symptoms of our poverty, not prosperity. It's what we do in the valley times that are going to have to define us. when we no longer feel to do what we know we should do. Verse 11 tells us, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I, fought as a ch- I understood as a child. I fought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul is saying that childish, to be a child is not to be despised. It's a place where everybody has to begin. And so he consolidates this by saying, you do everything as a child. The beginning of a process means that you will be immature in that process. You start a new job. You will need to learn the ropes. You will need to learn what needs to do and you will be a point where you'll be immature in that job. That's starting as a child. What is frowned upon here is the unwillingness to grow into into maturity. Being a child is a part of life being a child in the christian sense is paul says again you are babes in christ you're at that point where you're beginning to understand i mean and they were babes in christ not just for the simple fact that they were new believers but because as paul would define to them the jewish culture had an understanding of god that was exceed, that exceeded their understanding being in paganism for the better part of their lives and so the many things that a, a Jewish person could take, into, take for granted, these people couldn't because all they knew was paganism. And so Paul had to teach them a whole new way of life and this is why this letter is written. But the life of a child is not to be despised if it is trying seriously and sincerely to develop and ripen into adulthood. And you'll see children pretending to be adults. That's a good thing. You watch them playing the mums and dads, which is always fun. You even see a bit of EastEnders drama going on in in many of their enactments nowadays, which always baffles me and concerns me. But... um, They're learning to be adults and they're looking at the adult world. And this is why Paul again says look at those amongst you who are mature and seek to imitate them. Look at the maturity of those believers around you and seek to be there. And this is the process that we often don't follow. As Christians, because as adults we feel like we really actually are already adults, but we have to acknowledge our childlessness. We are beginning something. We need to find the mature and we need to imitate them. That's why Paul comes around and he says, Imitate me. If you lack no example, I spent time with you. Remember the things that I did, do what I do. Jesus' ministry was based on the same thing. He says, John twenty one, imitate I, follow me. So children have to develop through references. And as a practical application, find references of who you want to be as a believer and follow them. Not as the be-all and end-all, but as somebody that you can learn and pattern yourself as a believer. Children need references. You know, you look at the, uh, the studies of child of a child that grows with no adults around them they physically do not grow they do not thrive they do not develop the emotional stability that they need children need experience, they lack experiences they lack knowledge which they need to gain the linear nature of man means that we need to date, one, date, take one day at a time And linear just basically means we experience time one moment at a time. Paul is showing us that, due to the fact that we are children and beginners, children means that maturity is a gradual thing. It's not instantaneous. Gradual in the sense that we will never have a time where we will say, today I've become a man or a woman. Today I've become mature. It just happens that one day you will look around and you will notice that your life is not the way it used to be. And all the small decisions you make in each day has contributed to who you are as an adult, as a mature person. It it never makes sense as a believer to live beyond today or live in yesterday. Everybody must live where reality touches their lives and that is this moment right here, right now. The power to make a decision is today, not in the future. Childhood is transitory not residential. Transitory basically means something you move through from one thing to another. Residential means a place where you live. We cannot live in childhood. It's a transitory thing where we need to move to where we're going. The children of Israel in the wilderness is an excellent picture of this. There came a point where they preferred to live in the wilderness. And it's not a place where you can live. Verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Paul compares the current human condition to the glorified one. He now changes the illustration and he moves to something about the sanctification that the believer is going through now. The difficulties that they're going through now. The fact that they have faith but they don't quite see all how God is going to work in their lives. We see in a mirror dimly. And he compares that to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So he now takes the illustration of coming out of childhood into maturity and says it's like becoming a believer who lives in the world, struggles with the sanctification process, and now goes into glory. He says there will come a point where all those frustrations will be explained away. The glorified believer, and that's the aim. That should be the aim of every believer. Looking forward to glory. To be glorified with Christ. And he's saying this because glorification is incomparable to sanctification. As sanctification is incomparable to justification. When you look at the stages of Christian development, to come to a place where you have faith in faith and being justified is a great place to be. But you can't live there. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your saviour is a great place to be. But it must move into sanctification. To be justified and not be sanctified is not moving into maturity. And as sanctification is not a place that we should coach or be comfortable, it's incomparable to glorification. Even sanctification is not a place that we can live. Every believer must earnestly seek that point where perfection will come. And that's what sinless perfection is. It's not living a life without any sins whatsoever. It's living a life where perfection is viewed to a point where you cannot imagine your life being complete without it. And you live every moment towards that. Every effort is taken to be consistent with the perfection you expect. And so we do see, we see dimly, we see dimly that perfection. But clarity will come. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith and hope are great things to have in the arsenal of a believer. In fact, you cannot exist as a believer without faith and hope. Faith, believing in the tangible works and presence of God beyond that which we can see. And hope, meaning that we will see good things. We will hope to see these things. It's what fuels our faith. It keeps us positive. Believers need positivity, not the way that the world brings positivity, looking at things where we try to live in a non-real position. The hope, in the Christian sense, hopes to see that God will have his way. That's real hope. And they're placeholders because they hold us until that which is perfect comes. It's that which we need to get to the place where perfection is, where love is complete. So Paul's comparison to all these things, and this is why my point earlier was that love is an end within itself, is that he looks at these three great gifts that the God has given into the body and he says, out of all of these things, the only thing that will continue to abide is love. When perfection comes, faith and hope is no longer necessary. We do not hope and we do not have faith in that which we have. But the kingdom still thrives on love. And so this is the end, see, and see, the progression is that we always move into maturity because we're going to that, we, we're looking to that place where we no longer have to move on anymore. Every aspect of our human lives here, as good as it can be, is all transitory incomparable to heaven to being with Christ, to being in that place where faith in Christ is no longer faith in Christ. It's loving Christ directly. It's loving and being embraced. Having that touch that wipes away all tears. We may feel him wipe away the tears of our lives today. But there's a point where that will become a reality where it will never have to be done again. We are made glad in a particular day, only to be sad again. And that's what perfection is talking about. This is what the maturity we are looking for, to move beyond the imperfect to the perfect, to allow our loves to grow. As we go back to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10, it says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You know, apparently, I'm a card-carrying member of the Generation X. (laughs) People born in the 60s and the 70s. And we have been described as the most nostalgic generation. You know, you see these, you know, I, I remember the time where seeing these things like, you know, I love the 72 and I love 73 programs and looking at those and thinking, oh yeah, I remember that. And I get excited when I look back at life as it was before. I, look, I love looking back to simpler times. I love looking back to simpler times because life is more complicated now. I love looking back because I remember when I didn't have to worry about anything. All I had to complain about is when being told I have to stop playing, have a bath, go to bed. And Solomon here is saying when we are nostalgic to the point where we are no longer able to see the benefits of our current lives and the responsibilities that we've been called to today, that we have been unwise in thinking that. When we look at our relationships and think that where has the romance gone? There might be genuine ways that you might raise that issue with your partner. But there's a point where if you have heard anything I've said today where the romance has needed to go to give place to a better love, To the practicalities of being in a relationship. To the practicalities of being in a friendship. It no longer is about the convenience that it makes to you. Or the pinnacle it puts you on. It's about the realities of meeting responsibilities in life. And that's what being an adult is. Is embracing the responsibilities. Simpler times are not better times. Having a good childhood is to be cherished, but it's not the best that life has to offer. Whenever I feel nostalgic, I remember (laughs) my desire to be an adult. I remember when I felt the limits of my parents' reign, how I desired to be an adult when I could make those decisions for myself. And that always brings me to a place of clarity. I wanted to be an adult. A good childhood will make you want to be an adult. Because you will learn that where you are at is not a place that you can live. To not inquire wisely about our past will rob us of our future. Responsibility is the part and parcel of every person who seeks to be a mature person. And Paul's definition of love is helping to bring not some huge clarity to what love is itself, though it does actually do that, and we read these in weddings specifically, to encourage people to love with this complete love. But this text is about maturity and always has been about maturity. Whenever you see it recited within a, within a wedding ceremony, it is with the hope that it will, the love that you have today will grow into something even better. So today this can meet you wherever you're at because it's not just about being mature in love. It's about being mature in everything that we might need to own up and say, I need to take ownership of. Enjoy the days where you have little responsibility. Enjoy even more the opportunity to take on more. If you hear the Spirit of the Lord today, you will know that where we're at is not a place we can live. There is always aspects of our lives that need to grow and mature. Glorification has to be put in a place where it will help us to keep our faith active and hopeful to that which is perfect is come let's pray father we thank you for love we thank you for maturity we thank you for faith we thank you for hope we thank you for the call of the spirit of God in our lives to move us forward and thrust us into A better day, Lord. Father, we thank you for the simpler times in which we are able to grow and thrive and live our lives, Lord. We thank you for the days, Lord, that are more harder, that call upon us and bear upon us and desire more from us, Lord. I pray, Lord God, we will not shrink from every challenge in our lives, Lord, that your Spirit brings to us today to love in difficult circumstances. Lord, to take on more than we feel that we are able to accomplish, Lord. I pray that we will be not merely, as the world says, the bigger man, Lord God, but the person who lives with hope and faith and love as a real goal and so therefore feels no loss to give up, Lord, that which they cannot keep. Lord, let our pride take a back seat. Let our arrogance take a back seat, Lord. Let our childish nature, Lord God, Be that which is a healthy childhood, Lord, that looks and desires a maturer and fuller life.